Genesis 1-2 through the rest of the chapter is very much describing the same ideas as the Egyptians would talk about their creation. That's a very consistent ancient Near Eastern way of perceiving it, of describing the physical universe. We do see some talking snakes in Egypt. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm with Dr. Soden. We're going to be talking about Egyptian context of Genesis 1 and 2. This is a very, very fascinating talk that does not get talked about enough. Okay, how are you doing today, Dr. John Soden? And can you just give us a little bit of background of yourself? Doing great. Yep, sure. <clears throat> I uh, did my education, uh, Biola University undergrad, seminary was at Dallas Seminary. PhD was at Dallas Seminary in Semitics and Old Testament Studies. I was a pastor then for a little over nine years in Southwest Colorado. And then I have been at Lancaster Bible College and Capital Seminary in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. for the last 25 years. Awesome. And uh, you also wrote a very interesting book, which is a big reason why we're here. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about your about the book and Maybe just any other work you've done since then? Sure. So I wrote, In the Beginning We Misunderstood, uh, put out by Kriegel, uh, 2012. And it is looking at, uh, my co-author is Johnny Miller. He was uh, the pastor of the church that I attended at the time. And <clears throat> we wanted to enter the discussion of how the people in the church typically talk about Genesis 1 with regard to the relationship between science and faith. And what we wanted to do was show that Genesis 1 is not really a text dealing with science and that the issue of old earth, young earth, for example, needs to be taken out of the context of how do we, how do we connect the events of Genesis 1 with the events of science because it wasn't written in a scientific time. So um, we both described a little bit of our background and experiences. And then um, I did quite a lot of research on the backgrounds so that we could place Genesis 1 in particular, the creation of the initial creation account, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, place that into its context and show how an ancient audience, particularly Israel coming out of Egypt, would have heard those words, what they would have understood in Genesis 1, uh, long before Copernicus and the way we understand our universe and what it would have meant to them, because that dramatically changes how we read the text and how we understand some of the things that are going on there. Um, I think it helps us to recognize that our assumptions about the background, about the text, and about the meaning of certain things makes a huge difference on what, what we understand. And what we understand or what we want to understand is what God intended it to mean to the original audience, not what we assume it means because of our, our 21st century perceptions. So in entering the conversation, we wanted to help people to recognize that the issue shouldn't be, are you orthodox because you believe in a young earth or an old earth? The issue should be, what did God intend for this to mean? And what was he trying to communicate to his people? 
And then later we can apply that to our understanding of science or anything else, but we need to understand the text on its own terms in its own context first. So that's really my burden. That's what I was trying to accomplish and what we were trying to do as we were talking about this to maybe lower the temperature a little bit of the conversation and make it uh, more exegetical and dealing with the text rather than trying to bring science into it too soon. Hey chat, subscribing to our YouTube channel allows us to help our watchers understand the Bible better. Thanks to your help, we have already reached thousands of people in their walk with Christ. If you'd like to help further our efforts, tap the subscribe button, which will allow us to reach even more people. You forgot to tell them to turn on bell notifications. Wait, they have to subscribe and click a bell now? Right, and and it's fairly interesting, you know, your book isn't like, it's not a, a science book. I mean, you barely even even mention the word science. It's mainly focused on just, you know, how do you interpret the Bible like the way it should be, which I really appreciate right. that. Um, so, and I mean, you talked about, a, a, you know, a pretty good intro there. Uh, can you give us just, I mean, you, you do believe that Moses wrote Genesis. So um, considering you believe that, like, what reason would we think to, um, to, what reason would we have to think that the Israelites that Moses was writing for had any idea about, you know, you know, anything Egyptian as far as like what they believed sure. or, you know, writing techniques or anything like that? Because I do accept the basic narrative of scripture as true. And by the way, caveat, that doesn't mean that I believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch exactly as we have it. I have no problem with some later ed editing of the text. Um, that some of that is really easy to show. Um, God can use an inspired editor later as well. I do believe, however, that Moses wrote the, the, the basic contours of the Pentateuch. And so saying that Moses wrote Genesis 1 is not a problem to me. Um, I do believe in a historical exodus that Israel was actually in Egypt and that they did come out. Um, there are some really helpful works that deal with that from an evangelical perspective. I'd recommend Jim Hoffmeyer, Israel in Egypt and Israel in Sinai. But um, beyond that, just free plug for Jim, but um, beyond that, the reason I say that is because a lot of people don't believe there was ever an exodus, that there was ever Egypt, um, Israel in Egypt. Um, and so that becomes problematic. But the fact that I do recognize that, I do believe that to be true historically, means that if the, if the biblical narrative is accurate, Israel was in Egypt for a very long time. We're talking 400 years. To be in a country 400 years means you're going to absorb their culture. You're going to absorb um, their way of thinking, their cognitive environment, so to speak, which means uh, if, if your family came over to the United States sometime in the last 200 years or 300 years or 400 years, you probably think of yourself more as, a, as an American than you do as a European or African or Asian or wherever you, your family came from. That being said, Israel was still dramatically confined to their own uh, subgroup, which meant they couldn't really mix well. So they stayed Israelite, but that doesn't mean that they're thinking stayed monotheistic or, or Yahvistic. And we know that because we know that when they came out of Egypt, they were still carrying around their Egyptian gods with them. Uh, we know that from Joshua. Joshua 24 tells us that. We know that from um, Ezekiel. He talks very strongly about Israel's um, failure to worship Yahweh alone and bringing their Egyptian gods along. 
And that's uh, Joshua 24, for example, is a long time after. That's after 40 years of exile or 40 years of desert plus um, maybe 25 to 35 years in the land. So it was a long time that they hung on to their Egyptian identity in those sorts of ways. We also know that many Egyptians came with them. So there's just a, a lot going on. Uh, to be thinking then and talking in Egyptian ways means that they are sharing those same world pictures, images, and even worldview. So their their perspective on God or the gods is going to be very warped, and their perspective on who they are as human beings, as a nation, is going to be very warped. And I'm suggesting that what God is actually doing with Genesis 1 and Genesis as a book, as a whole, is he's addressing many of those concerns to show the nation and really the world as well, who he is, who they are, what their responsibilities are before him, how they need to understand how his world works and, and how they are within his world, what that's going to require. All that sort of stuff is going to be very much important to Israel coming out of Egypt. So yeah, they're steeped in Egyptian everything to find Egyptian background ideas and motifs and so on in the book of Genesis and Genesis one in particular is not a huge surprise. Yeah, totally. So you talk about, uh, you know, just, you know, the background, but you know, a lot of people are going to be asking, like, why is that even important to begin with? I mean, especially, you know, if the Bible is supposed to be clear and all that, you know, why does it matter if it, you know, the people that were writing it were in a specific context? Yeah, that's a great question and a question that is asked a lot. Um, I could probably a little bit facetiously hand you my Hebrew Bible and say, please read this to me and tell me how clear it is. And you may or may not be able to read it. <clears throat> uh, depends on if you know Hebrew, correct? So, um, so we recognize that there's a context that we have to get past because it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written, it wasn't written immediately in our context, language, history, background, anything. It was written thousands of years ago and, um, it was written with a very different context in mind and it was written to those people. So they would have understood it. So it's written in, in their cognitive environment and their thinking and it, with their words and their, their meanings. And if I were to say to you, <clears throat> um, the Buccaneers slaughtered the Colts last night, um, the context matters very much. If you know that I'm talking about 21st century American football, that is one thing. If you think I'm talking about 17th century uh, privateering, that's going to be something very different. And if I'm talking about how they showed up at Assateague and slaughtered the Colts, that's going to be a very different conversation than um, uh, Tom Brady winning a football game or whatever. So context does matter because the the meaning of the terms matters the implications of the terms the not just the denotations but the connotations of the terms matter dramatically as well so when we talk about some of these things and we hear them and see them in our context that doesn't guarantee that i am hearing and seeing what the original audience would have heard and seen what, what they would have thought of because their world picture when I think of that, I'm, I'm talking, when I'm talking world picture, I'm not talking about um, a snapshot I take outside. But what I am talking about is how the world actually works and functions. And we see our world picture is the earth is a globe spinning in empty space with 
with the moon going around it and the sun and or the, the earth and moon are going around the sun and all that's going through uh, this, this universe. In the ancient world, they didn't perceive of it like that at all. You have basically a flat earth, which you don't get changed until much later. You have wherever they are is pretty much the center of that. You have um, water everywhere. So up there is water, down there is water, and we're this little um, snow globe is the way I like to think about it, sort of floating in dark, watery, chaotic mass. And the sun traverses the top of that snow globe and the moon and the stars as well. And they go down into the, in Egypt, it's the duat in the, at, at night, and then they come out the next day and do it again. And so you've got this very different picture of what's going on in terms of the structure of our universe. Our world picture is very different than theirs. And that's going to come out as in the ways things are described. So in the Psalms, you talk about the, uh, the roots of the mountains. And we've got these other things like, you know, what does it mean to separate the waters from the waters? And we'll get with that later. But um, all of that fits very differently and very well within their world picture, not so well within our world picture. Very fascinating and well said. Okay, so... Many people are, you know, very familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, but many are not familiar with what happens in the Egyptian creation text. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, let me also give another caveat to that one as well. And the reason is that with Mesopotamia, we have several pretty complete creation accounts. In Egypt, we don't. We have one fairly complete creation account, and um, from that, we also have thousands of texts that have pieces of the creation account. And um, as we look around all the Egyptian literature and put those pieces together, those, those, those pieces of creation of the creation narrative that, that was in Egypt are in a number of different genres or places. So you've got the Book of the Dead, you've got the Pyramid Texts, you've got the um, <clears throat> Coffin Texts, um, you, you've got the Memphite uh, Theology, which is the one main text. So there's there's just a lot of different places where you see these pieces. They're very consistent. Um, they did change the names of the main gods depending on which city they were and which gods they thought were most important. But basically the events and all that remain consistent over actually thousands of years. So Egyptologists tell us, and everything I've read corroborates, that the basic narrative of creation did not change all that much for these thousands of years, even though we don't have a, a bunch of clear, full texts of the whole creation account. So when I talk about the Egyptian creation account, what we're talking about is piecing together all of these all of these pieces of creation that we see in all the various texts, which are myriad, lots of them, but recognizing that as we piece them all together, it's like they're all pieces for the same puzzle. They're all showing the same picture. They're all giving us the same basic information, um, different parts of it in different, different ways, but still basically the same information. So uh, when I say that then, um, we look at those creation accounts and we realize that those events are pretty much standard in Egyptian fair as we go through the centuries. And what we see with it, um, I actually, in my book, I, I gave a nice little chart, I thought it was nice at least, that uh, develops the uh, 
sort of the main contours of the creation of the Egyptian creation that follows. And ironically, and I think it's significant as well, it follows the basic events of Genesis one to the T um, starts with this. Uh, everything is dark, watery, chaotic mass. This is just, there's four terms they use and that, that fought watery, unlimited darkness, imperceptibility. Those are kind of the main four terms. And that's just everywhere. And then this, this God sort of appears, he creates himself actually in their theology. He appears in, in that water. Um, <clears throat> he begins to speak creation into existence. And the first event is light. And then from the light, you've got, <clears throat> excuse me, separating the waters so that you have a, um, so it's all water. This, this atmosphere separates out. Then you have this land that coalesces in the middle and in the bottom. And so you have this thing going around Then you have the sun rising in this, uh, in its orbit. And then you have the creation of the, uh, the plants and the fish and the birds and the animals and man. And, and at the end of this, God, the God rests. Basically you have all the same events all the way through and they're all in the same order. Uh, but the, the picturing of it is very different from what we assume when we read Genesis one from our context. That is very fascinating. Okay. I cannot wait to get into that. Okay. So do we know what creation texts would have been in circulation during the time of the Exodus? So because of what I just said, that's a difficult question because we don't know what creation texts there may have been in terms of full pieces other than the Memphite theology. Now, the Memphite theology is an interesting one because it's the only full text we have. It's actually, uh, it was carved into a stone and that stone was repurposed. And when it was carved into a stone, it said it was repurposed as a grindstone. So we don't have everything on there, but... Um, but when it was carved, it was actually carved as the scribes were, were um, preserving much more ancient texts by carving it onto the stone. And so the stone itself is later than the Exodus, but it tells us that it was a text that was much earlier, which would have been then in circulation at the same time. Plus, we have all these other pieces which go from long before, in fact, over a thousand years of history, uh, these, ba these basic, the basic contours of it don't change for the pieces that we have in the various places. So we don't have a single text from that time period, but we have a lot of evidence that the, the contours that we have, the basic narrative that we have of, of creation from an Egyptian perspective didn't change during that entire period and actually was in existence long before, no matter which date of the Exodus we choose, long before the Exodus. Very fascinating. Okay. So do you think that Egyptian counts started with unordered, watery, darkness, parallel, that, that, you know, depending on your view of Genesis 1, you know, a lot of people would say that Genesis 1 starts with that darkness. So right. can you talk about that yeah. and and the similarities, if you think so? Yeah, I do think so. Um, there's been a couple of couple different scholars that have written on that, uh, comparing those and saying, you know, these are just too close to be coincidental. But in Genesis 1, my understanding of Genesis 1, the way I take it, and I argue for this in the book, but others argue for this as well, that Genesis 1, 1 is the 
summary title of the section. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God created everything. Now, let me tell you how he did it. Genesis 1-2 is the real starting point of how he's going to describe creation. So I'm not arguing God didn't create everything out of nothing. I fully agree with that. Scripture later tells us completely that's true. But I'm saying Genesis 1 isn't describing that. He's saying, okay, let me tell you about creation and let me start with this dark, watery, chaotic mass. The uh, formless, void, darkness, and deep are the four terms that are used in Genesis 1-2. And from that, God is going to bring life and good, thriving and and good life in the midst of all this. So he's going to reorder all of his creation, um, beginning with those qualities in Genesis 1-2, which is actually the way the creation accounts are described in Egypt. It begins with this it doesn't begin with nothing. It begins with this pervasive dark water. And in that, the God creates himself. He didn't exist before. That's a very significant change, difference from Genesis 1, of course. And then within that, he creates what we would call creation. He, he makes it the way we now know it, including making all the gods. But um, the reason I say that is that Genesis 1, 1 or Genesis 1, 2 through the rest of the chapter is is very much describing the same ideas in the same order in the same sorts of ways as the Egyptians would talk about their creation and yet there's some radical discontinuity that we need to notice as well which we can get to awesome okay so in your book you also talked about that there was it's like a wind in Egyptian text could you talk about that and I mean, I know that in one three Genesis one three that there might be a similarity there. So, right. So in, um, in the Egyptian text, the the initial creator god is the god of wind, and we see him sort of in the waters, and then we have the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis. Uh, the word ruach for spirit is also the word for wind. So. Uh, scholars have debated this for a long time as to whether this is intended to be a great wind or whether this is supposed to be the wind of God or whether this is the spirit of God. And my suggestion is that the original audience would have probably recognized a double entendre here. Would have, they initially would have thought of wind because that's what they're thinking of with the Egyptian creation account. But on the other hand, as we're reading through the text, this is God at work. And so this wind of God or this spirit of God uh, becomes much more the personal working of God within the context of creation as opposed to uh, wind itself. And that's really not that far from the Egyptian perspective either, because we're talking about the God of wind. So we're not talking about just wind as a natural phenomenon divorced from anything spiritual. In, in Egypt, it would have been thought in very much um, spiritual terms. And so to think of that in terms of God at work is not very much of a difference. Yeah, so really, even if you don't translate it wind in Genesis 1-3, you, you can still have that similarity. So uh, you talked about, you know, the spoken word. And my understanding is that we don't have that in all Egyptian uh, texts. Is that right? Or can you talk about that similarity and as well as like if certain, <clears throat> it being in certain texts matters at all? Yeah. No, actually, I think so. Creation happens in several ways in Egypt. So it happens by spitting. It happens by um, 
masturbation. It happens by speaking. And uh, Moses chose, I would say, Moses chose that metaphor of speaking as the means by which God creates. And, And the reason I say metaphor is if we believe Jesus, that God is spirit and is not corporal, and of course, that's consistent throughout scripture. God doesn't have a body. He's, he's spirit. Um, he doesn't have lips, mouth, teeth, gums. So speaking is not the same thing for God as it is for us. It's, it's very much an anthropomorphism. But that's a very important one in Genesis 1, because in each case, God is speaking things into existence. And the implication, I think, is really clear that God is willing it to happen, willing it to become. But the... Anthropomorphism is really helpful because one of the implications of God as creator is that God is sovereign overall. God is king. And who is it that speaks and it happens no matter what he says? Well, the closest we come to it, humanly speaking, is the king. When the king speaks, it happens because somebody carries out his word. In creation, God speaks and it happens. It just effortlessly does. There's no battle. There's no uh, struggle. There's, it's just, it happens, but it shows his sovereignty. It shows his, um, his control overall. And this is again, very significant within the context because Genesis one presents God as outside of all of creation and creating, as opposed to the Egyptian God who's within creation, part of creation, and actually is one of the pieces of creation, even though he's creating other gods and creating other things. So very different perception of God, but a very similar way of seeing his activity that helps us as human beings to get a better handle on his sovereign authority over all things, over all creative things, all creation. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so... uh... We have the light before the sun and in line. A lot of people have said that that means that Genesis 1 must be figurative. But we also have that in a lot of other texts, including Egyptian uh, Egyptian creation texts. Could you talk about those? Sure. So the concept across the ancient world, not just Egypt, but Mesopotamia, probably Canaan, although there's very little evidence to know for sure how Canaan thought. They just, we don't have nearly as many texts. But... Uh, clearly in Egypt and Mesopotamia, um, the perception was that light was a thing all by itself. It didn't have to have a light giver, didn't need a sun or a moon or stars or whatever to give light, didn't need a flashlight. Light was just something that occurred by itself. Um, It was an independent object, so to speak. So to have light before the sun is not an unusual thing. And probably again, as I think you suggested, it probably again, it is an observational thing because you see light apart from a light giver. You see, you see light before the sun rises. Um, and after the sun goes down, it's, it's still lingering. So how can that be if it has to have the sun? Um, obviously we would describe that in one way, but, but observationally without knowing the physics of it, it makes it a very different thing. So So in the ancient world, it wasn't a surprise to have light first. Now, the question that we wrestle with as 21st century believers looking at Genesis 1 is, but isn't isn't he telling us the truth? So therefore, you had to have light before you had the sun. And what I'm suggesting is that's not the issue here at all. He is telling us the truth, but he's using their language 
he's not endorsing their view of science, so to speak, but he's using their language, which, as I think I've said, they themselves would have understood much of it to be figurative anyway. So uh, an, an illustration would be <clears throat> that um, I might say to you, hey, did you see the beautiful sunrise this morning? Now, you wouldn't stop and correct me and say, wait a minute, the sun didn't rise. You know that the earth is spinning on its axis and the sun was below the horizon as, as the earth spun, the earth, the sun became visible. You wouldn't say that because we all know that. You would simply say, yeah, that was really gorgeous, wasn't it? Or no, I didn't get to see it. Tell me about it. Um, we talk about the sunrise. <clears throat> Jesus talked about the sunrise. Surely Jesus knew better, but that's just the language of observation. That's the way it looks. You see sun coming up and you're thinking, oh, the sun's coming up. The sun is rising. It's not really, but we don't stop to correct it. We just use that language. And that's what I'm suggesting Moses is doing. He's just using their language. And by using their language, he's saying all these things that we talk about that had to happen in creation, God did them. And God really did them. He's, it's not that it's not historical. It is, but it's not scientifically precise. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, if we're going to take that to its logical conclusion, um, we also read Revelation. We have, uh, you know, it seems to say that Jesus was the was the light before on, you know, day one. I, uh, the, the verse will actually be down there. I can't remember what it was right now. <laughs> um, but and we also have other texts um, in the Psalms, I believe, where we have God is kind of described in the same terms as, you know, like a sun or, you know, brightness and light and all that. So, I mean, do you think it's possible? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We can talk right. about any of those sorts of things. Certainly. I mean, I mean that's, that's absolutely true. I don't mm -hmm. have any question about that. But I don't think that is trying. Yeah, those statements, I would say, are not trying to speak ontologically either. So they're not trying to say the essence of God is lightness but it's trying to say something figurative about God, that he is absolutely holy and that there's no sin and there's no, so there's no darkness. Um, those figurative expressions don't require then that the light at the beginning had to be God himself or Jesus pre-incarnate or those sorts of things. In, in my view, I, I don't see that that requires that necessarily at all. Could it have been? I suppose it could have been. I'm not saying it wasn't only because um, I'm I'm suggesting it's not giving us enough information to be able to say this. Try, this is trying to make an ontological statement about what physical entities were existing at that point. Rather, I'm suggesting that they're just using um, the the naturally observant figurative language that everybody talks about in order to communicate something that they didn't understand and that is who God is as creator and that he's transcendent. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, uh, can you talk about the similarities in the Egyptian gods separating the waters to create an atmosphere? <clears throat> well, the similarity is really language. So in Genesis, we see that God <clears throat> separated the waters from the waters and uh, let's see. He said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And the challenge that 
we have faced forever is what on earth does that mean? How, you know, where are the waters up there? And some people would say, well, that's just the clouds in the sky. Maybe, but that's certainly not the way an Egyptian would have thought of it. So Whitcomb and Morris for a while were saying, well, there must be a, must have been a vapor canopy up there. And, and they put all this water up there and then it came down in the flood. Well, uh, many young earth creationists today have abandoned that because um, the, the laws of physics don't work so well. But um, I don't think that's the issue here. The terminology is very similar to what we're doing. As I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the first things that God did was, so you've got this, it's all water and you have this waters being separated so that you have atmosphere. And now all of a sudden you have this bubble of light and order, well, order first and order becoming uh, atmosphere, at least with then the light is added and the order is added and it's floating around in the midst of the darkness. That snow globe effect, that that bubble is what is being described by the Egyptian accounts. And there's nothing to suggest it's different in Genesis 1. Uh, the rakia, the dome, is is perceived as holding back the waters. That's a very consistent ancient Near Eastern way of perceiving it, of describing the physical universe. That doesn't mean that they didn't recognize that that wasn't exactly right, but it means that's the way it looked. That's the way it assumed, that they assumed it, it must have been something similar to that, or they're not sure. Um, oftentimes we see that dome resting on the mountains, but they knew that wasn't the case either. They, they went up to some of those mountains. They knew that there was no dome on it if you got there. But there's still this perception because that's the way it looks. And so that's the way it's being described. So my suggestion as I'm reading all this and as I'm looking at it, I'm simply saying Moses is taking their language and he's using it to describe what God did without endorsing a particular functional view of the universe. He's simply using figurative language that they would all say, yeah, that, that makes sense. The sun rises. And then he is uh, saying, so let me tell you who made that sunrise. Yeah, I like that. So on day three, you also have some type of separating, which is, you know, the, the, the waters, the, the waters below and then land appears. Can you talk about that right. and how that relates to the Egyptian accounts? Well, the next event in the Egyptian count is, is this primordial mound uh, rises out of the waters and so you have land appearing, if you will, and that's really what's happening here. And interestingly, again, as we read the account in English and as we think about the account from our perspective, we have to make some significant adjustments to try to figure it all out. Because, you know, he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Wait a minute. If you look at our globe, are the waters all in one place? Well, not exactly, you know, and you don't have just one set of dry land. You've got all these continents and well, we're translating that into our perspective, but from, from their viewpoint, that's exactly the way they would have thought of it. Okay. So land is right there in it and waters, waters all around it, but the land is all sort of coalescing in the middle. So it's, uh, it's just very consistent with their terminology. 
Can you, uh, you mentioned it a few times, but could you just briefly sum up the, the order of creation where you have the Genesis account and the Egyptian account and how they're similar? Okay. So both of them have this beginning with the uh, watery unlimited darkness in verse two of Genesis. It is formless void, darkness and deep. Both of them have the spirit of God or the wind, the God of wind hovering on the waters. Both of them, you have the God speaking and it happens. Both of them, you have light being created next. Then you have the waters being created to separate atmosphere out. You have the land being separated out. You have the sun rising. And then, on, of course, that's day four. You've got uh, the, the gods creating the uh, fish, birds, animal life. The only difference that I was able to discover here is that uh, plants are in Egyptian creation account, plants are included there. And of course, plants are in day three in uh, the biblical account. And I'm not sure that that's always the case in the Egyptian account. It's just that those were the only places I could find it. Um, in both cases, you have next mankind is being created. And in both cases, at least in many of the Egyptian accounts, you've got mankind being created in the image of gods, or you have at least the God, the Pharaoh being created in the image of God. Um, Egypt, Egypt is the only place where there is at least a mention of humanity in general being in the image of God. Otherwise, it's just the Pharaoh or the king. Uh, in both cases, after the creation account, the God rests. And um, so there's just a consistent order all the way through. It's exactly the same order. It is, um, it's amazing when you compare them. Now, that doesn't mean everything's the same. If you're reading an Egyptian account, if you read through the Memphite theology, you're going to say, wait a minute, that is very different from Genesis 1. It's absolutely amen and praise the Lord. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so, I mean, you're making these similarities, but, and you said, you know, you say it's a figure of language and all that, but I mean, do you also think that the Egyptians are also using figurative language when they think this? I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I'm I'm assuming, and I think um, Dick Averbeck's one who has, who has shown more with Mesopotamian material, but has shown that these sorts of images for um, for the for the average person were were understood to be figurative largely. Now, did everybody understand it to be figurative? I don't know. Uh, if you go over to Papua New Guinea and you go to some of those tribesmen that don't have any idea of Copernicus, would they understand the sun isn't really rising? I'm not sure. You know, would they see that as figurative? I don't know. Uh, does your four-year-old know that the earth is a ball spinning and, and the sun is just being revealed over the horizon? I, I don't know. Um, so could some people be taking it much more woodenly, much more literally? Sure. But we do know that many of them understood that this was clearly just observational speech rather than clear, intentional uh, literalism. So hmm. I, I'm, just, I'm just assuming then, I'm suggesting that while on the one hand, we know many of them are taking it figuratively, Moses is just using that language not to say this is a scientific reality, but to say, okay, the way you're talking about it, that works. Let me tell you who did that. Let me tell you, because really the the burden of Genesis is to teach Israel about God, not to teach Israel physics or astrophysics or um, how the earth 
works. It's just, he's not teaching them science. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so on day five, you have these great uh, sea creatures being mentioned that God creates. Right. And, you know, a lot of scholars have mentioned that, you know, it's, it's not the same word used as Leviathan, but it's, you know, it's the word Tanim, which is, you know, most whenever it's mentioned, it's often mentioned in the context of some type of, you know, like chaos monster or something like that. Do you think there is anything in, in Egypt that parallels that concept or like mm -hmm. otherwise, like, why do you think it's in there? Yeah, no, I do. Um, I, one of the things that we don't often recognize probably is how well or how much um, ideas, particularly theological ideas, transcended cultures across the ancient world. So from Egypt to Mesopotamia to Canaan, at the time of Israel coming out of Egypt, we know and we can, uh, you know, there's, there's um, inscriptional evidence to show that many of the deities and many of the stories and many of the ideas are across all of those cultures. So they're very similar. Um, Canaanite gods are very much worshipped in Egypt as well. And some of those show up in scripture. You, you see things like, uh, we probably wouldn't notice it, but um, in the book of Judges, um, there's a, one of the minor judges is Shamgar. And it says he's, he's been Anat or son of Anat. Um, probably, I think the best understanding of that is not that his mama's name was Anat. Anat is the goddess of war and love. Uh, but rather, uh, there was a, um, one scholar has shown uh, an inscription where there was a, um, a regiment of Egyptian mercenaries, Hurrian mercenaries, and their, the name of their regiment was Ben Anat. They were the sons of Anat. And so I think a very plausible understanding of Shamgar is that he's actually, Shamgar is not a, not a Hebrew name, and it, that he is a foreign mercenary who God uses to deliver his people. Uh, we don't know much about him. It's only one verse, so there's not a whole lot in Judges about him. But, but the point I'm making is that Anat is a Canaanite god found in an Egyptian context. And this is not very long after the Exodus. We're talking about the period of the Judges. And that's consistent. So we have a lot of those sorts of things. So when we're talking about things like light before the sun, or we're talking about the names of the gods or the ideas, uh, some of the ideas of creation and so on, there's no surprise to see that a lot of these things are very consistent all the way across from Mesopotamia to Egypt and in between, which is Canaan. So that's those ideas transcend those cultures quite readily there's just a lot of commerce going, a lot of trade and warfare and, you know, uh, migrations. And so ideas go with people. Yeah, we also have the the, the Baal Temple uh, sometime around the Exodus. And we also have... Okay, so in your book, you talked about how God rested. Is there anything in Egypt that kind of parallels that idea? Yeah, absolutely. Ta rests. Um, Ta was the God that created in the Memphite theology. So he was... He was the main God at Memphis in his creation account. At the end of his creation account, he rested. We see this in the Mesopotamian accounts as well. Um, John Walton makes a big deal of it because he's comparing it to the um, temple building. And I think there's a really a lot to say there. I, I appreciate a lot of what John does. I don't agree with him on the fact that it's merely function, but, um, but a lot of people don't. That's not a surprise. Um, 
he's a great guy. And I think he has a lot of really helpful insights there. But the resting of the God at the end is not uh, going in and taking a nap. The resting of the God at the end is entering into his temple sanctuary and and taking up um, taking up his authority and ruling his kingdom. So it's not not doing anything. It's just that the creative work has stopped. And I think that's significant for Yahweh as well. And I agree with John and with many others who have pointed out that uh, Genesis 1 is very much um, temple imagery. Uh, we see it even more in Genesis 2 and the garden. I think that's very much temple imagery, temple precinct imagery, the pleasure garden or the the uh, the orchard that went with a temple or went with a palace. And Adam and Eve are very much presented not only as his ruling images in Genesis 1, but um, I think Genesis 1 includes this less clearly, but Genesis 2 much more clearly that he, Adam and Eve are very much the priest and priestess in God's kingdom as well. So I say that because um, the rest of God then is, on the one hand, there is a important corollary with humanity and how Israel is supposed to imitate their God by resting on the seventh day. But more importantly for Genesis 1, God is the sovereign in control of all of creation. And so his rest and his entering into his rest has to do with the fact that he is taking control, he is exercising control over all things created, not just in Egypt, it would be over a piece of it. So you have the God of of the Nile, or you have the God of the atmosphere, you have the God of the heavens, or you have the God of the land, or you have the God of this, that, and the other thing. And they had literally 1,500 or more gods or semi-gods. In Mesopotamia, you have the same sort of thing. You have gods of this, that, and the other thing. And in Canaan, we are probably more familiar with it because Baal is the God of the storm, and you have Mot, the God of death, and and, uh, Yom, the God of the sea. And so... All of that is to recognize that Yahweh is presenting himself quite differently than the gods of the ancient world. He is not connected to any material aspect. And as you alluded, or you began to say, at least when he put the sun, moon and stars in place, he's putting them in place um, in terms of ruling over the day and the night. But those are not divine functions. They are not uh, given divine spheres and ruling as gods. In fact, the difference is dramatic. And um, a number of scholars have mentioned it, but they're not named because if you name them, you are naming gods. But at the same time, um, their subservience to him is obvious that he is in control of all of these things. He puts them in place. He controls them. He's the one who is actually sovereign over everything. So that realm and that rest are critical to understanding the role of God and the place of God as opposed to the gods of the ancient world who had their own little spheres but had no real control outside of that. That is very, very fascinating. Wow. Okay. Uh, This is a bit off the cuff. Do you, I mean, there's some, there's a few similarities in uh, Egypt compared to the rest of Genesis 1 to 11, right? I mean, you have there's some type of tree and serpents. Do you know of any others in the Egyptian world? 
Um, yeah, so the creation account has some certain, some, uh, the creation of man in chapter two has some strong similarities because um, in Genesis two, you've got humanity, God creates him from the dust and, and the terms are the terms of forming as if you would be forming them on a wheel, uh, like a potter's wheel. And that's exactly what we have in Egypt as well. So you have the same idea, only it is not all of humanity being formed on a potter's wheel, it's just the Pharaoh who's being formed on a potter's wheel. Um, ironically, and I think maybe significantly, all of humanity is understood to be God's son, God's images, God's uh, representative rulers, as opposed to just the de just the king. So it's not just Pharaoh or the king of Mesopotamia, but it's all of humanity, which gives all of humanity a very different uh, value and function before God than we see in the ancient world. In the ancient world, all the rest of humanity are just the God's cattle. They're the ones who take care of God and, and, and God can use them and abuse them. And, and that's, that's true in Egypt, that's true in Mesopotamia, but you get to the Bible and all of humanity are his images, his image bearers and have great value and uh, are significant as his servants. And he cares for mankind, not the other way around. Um, Mesopotamia is even more, uh, more stark, I suppose you could say, um, in the fact that humanity was, was created to, to care for the gods. Uh, the humans were created to do all the chores that the gods were tired of doing. And yet you go to Genesis 1 and 2, and it is God who is particularly, chapter 2, God is, is not only caring for man, but providing his every need and, and uh, caring very closely for humanity. So very different theology, even though the world picture is very similar because he's using language that just speaks to them and doesn't necessarily speak to us. Yeah, totally. Uh, so any any other thoughts on similarities in, uh, in Genesis 2 to 11? Uh, yes. Uh, for the most part, I would say 2 to 11 probably f uh, follows the Mesopotamian literature more closely. Uh, than it does the Egyptian, which is interesting, um, but I think it's also important to recognize. But uh, probably the other thing that I think is significant here is the um, the snake account in chapter three. Um, we do see some talking snakes in Egypt. They happen to be gods, um, which is, I think, significant because it shows up something of the... Uh, spiritual aspect the second thing that I think is helpful here is to recognize the uh, the warfare imagery that's going on in chapter three. Dick Averbeck has written a really helpful article on that. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but um, <clears throat> I can find it if you're interested later. Totally. But he is um, showing how what many people have called chaos conf, which is the uh, the battle with chaos in creation that the gods uh, do, uh, doing battle. And you mentioned Tanin or Leviathan, and that's usually very much part of that chaos conf motif. Uh, that shows up very strongly in many of the creation accounts, particularly in Mesopotamia. But um, what we see in the, in the creation account in Genesis 1 is no battle at all. There is no struggle. It is purely God sovereignly, effortlessly creating everything and they're under his control. The battle shows up in chapter three. 
the battle shows up with the challenge of the snake to God's authority through Adam and Eve. And so Dick has helpfully drawn out a lot of that and shown that uh, they would have probably uh, would easily have recognized that as uh, that chaos conf motif, not directly with creation, but with the God of creation and with the representative that he has on earth. So um, those are some of the things. It is probably more the order and the events are stronger with Mesopotamia from chapters two through 11 than chapter one. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, with the flood and uh, right. all, all the different other stuff there. So, um, you know, this, this really begs a question regards to like why this text was written. I mean, you know, the, the people are coming out of Egypt. It, it seems almost a little odd to at least me, or 21st century readers in general, it's like, why in the world does, do these people care, like, who created the world? Uh, do you have any idea, um, you know, what the, what you think is the purpose? I mean, I've heard some people say that, you know, it's kind of like a polemic, like, you know, our, like Yahweh is the real one who created everything, not these other gods that you were worshiping in Egypt. I mean, is that what you think? Or do you think it's something else? Well, I think it's a combination. Uh, polemic is really important because they were believing a totally unbiblical, and I think that's an appropriate word here, um, worldview, because what they understood from their Egyptian background is uh, all these gods that are involved in all these various places. And you have to appease all the gods and you have to do all these things. And, and God, his, who is calling them to be his people and to represent him to the world, to show the world who he is so that the world can find blessing, it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This God is calling them to show the world who he is by living it out as his servants. And so the Mosaic covenant, when he brings them out of Egypt, is saying, you're my people, you represent me to the world. And God, Yahweh, is the means by which the world will find blessing. It's it's in knowing and walking with God. So they've got to know who he is. So Israel certainly on the one hand needs to recognize the differences and there's polemic there and saying those gods know me, yes, but it's more than that. They have to really actually know who God is in a positive sense. They have to be willing and able to um, represent that to the world so the world understands who he is and they have to recognize their role before him, their place before him, who they are. And what that means in terms of their value, what that means in terms of their service, what that means in terms of, of how they respond to him. And all of that is part of experiencing God's blessing, but it's also part of sharing God's blessing and showing the world um, God's goodness and God's greatness. So it's not merely polemic in the sense of, um, let me show you who is bad and who is not God and what that means. But let me show you who God is, what his characteristics are. Uh, the fact that seven times God saw that it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good, tells us something not just about what God makes, but who God is. And the fact that God is the one who brings good out of darkness and chaos, disorder, that sort of thing. And we see that uh, it starts with God taking darkness and moving it to good and order and life and bringing uh, the, the atmosphere and the, the world in which he can thrive. You get to the end of the book of Genesis 
And in chapter 50, you have Joseph um, being confronted by his brothers who say, hey, don't kill us. Dad's dead now, but please don't kill us. We didn't, you know, we didn't really mean it. And Joseph says, who am I, God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What did God do? He took darkness and chaos and struggle, which Israel is very good, much going to identify with as they come out of Egypt. They've been in darkness, and that was the image of Egypt to Moses or to Abraham in Genesis 15. And they've been in oppression, and yet God is saying, but I'm going to make good out of this. And he still does. Yeah, that's really great. Uh, so you, you briefly mentioned it, but in your book, you made a really, really interesting point in regards to what it says in it's Exodus, I believe, where it talks about, it says God made the heavens and earth in six days. But then it says something about resting, and you've mentioned uh, that he was refreshed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 3117 is helpful. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The point I made in the book, and the point that I think is interesting here, is that the word for refreshed is usually, it's not used a whole lot, and it's used of uh, David after battle, and, and we're thinking he was just totally exhausted, and he needed to be refreshed, and you're thinking, wait, 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 this is God? God needed to be refreshed after resting? No, no. But what it is doing, it's another anthropomorphism that's saying, so God is is resting, and God is um, serving in, in his kingdom, but you as human beings, well, just like God, you do need to be refreshed and you need to rest in a little different way. So I think there's an interesting application for for us there. Anyway, that's uh, thank you for redirecting my thoughts. Yeah, totally. All right. This has been so great. I really appreciate you talking to me. Is there any resources where uh, more people can look at your stuff or, uh, you know, books that they can check out or anything like that? Yeah, so um, I don't have any other books yet. Uh, Lord willing, there will be a commentary coming out eventually from Kriegel with their K-Rook series on Genesis. Uh, that's just about drafted, but uh, I'm not sure when it'll come out. So the In the Beginning We Misunderstood is the only full-length book. I do have a few articles out there. There's a, If you're interested on um, the creation of man in Genesis 2, I did a BibSAC article in 2016 from the dust. Um but uh, yeah, I'm on Amazon, so you can look it up there and get the book there if you wish. Awesome. That's so exciting. All right. I really hope you have a great rest of your day, Dr. Sutton. Mm-hmm.